Hello, everyone. We're about to get started, so if you could please find your seats. Um, and probably most importantly, we are at a full house tonight, so if there's empty seats in the middle next to you, if you could please move in so everyone can find a spot, that would be most appreciated. There are a couple of seats up the front as well, so don't be shy. Wonderful. Thank you all so very much for coming. My name is Kate Smolsky. I'm the CEO of the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales, and I would first and foremost like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and their future leaders. So thank you all so very much for coming. It is my absolute pleasure to open the National Environment Meeting 2016. This is an event that is co-hosted with Nature Conservation Council, with Greenpeace, Australia Pacific, and the Sydney Environment Institute. The purpose of the conference is fourfold. For environmentalists, grassroots activists, and academics to come together where we can share, learn, laugh, and get better at what we do. To project the importance of environmental and climate issues through high-quality public sessions like the one tonight training opportunities, and transparency in debate. To identify areas of research priority and establish relationships for potential collaboration between the movement and academia, and perhaps most importantly, to ignite our hope in the dark. Founded 60 years ago, the Nature Conservation Council is the lead environment organization in New South Wales, working to protect our oceans, our forests, our wildlife, and working for a safer climate. And we are very pleased to be taking part in such an event. And of course, tonight's event is held in conjunction with the University of Sydney and Sydney Ideas. So now, tonight's discussion, we're going to be focusing on one question. What do we mean when we talk about the environment? Obviously, it means many things to different people. Our relationship with the environment can be expressed in many ways. Love for the amazing beauty of nature, the scientific building blocks of life, or the mundanities of everyday experience of life on this planet. Tonight, our panel of distinguished speakers will provide their insights and discuss the challenges and joys of communicating about the environment at a time when the natural world has never been under greater threat. The chair of the panel tonight is Professor Ian McCollum, co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute and author of The Reef, A Passionate History. So please welcome me in welcoming Ian. Thanks very much, and thanks very much for coming in, in such numbers. It's wonderful to see you here. Um, I just want to start by um, saying that I think that the greatest gift that, has, that Australia has given to the environmental world is the Indigenous idea and ethic, philosophy and practice of caring for country. And uh, this evening we're going to, well in in the conference to come you'll hear a lot of Indigenous people speaking about that in practice, which is one of the very good reasons for attending the conference. Tonight, however, we've got um, four non-Indigenous artists, I'm going to call them, uh, for a an appropriate collective noun, um, who, who we're going to... I'll introduce very briefly. 
Um, and the panel will then uh, I'll shoot them a question or two. We'll get them talking among themselves and uh, I'll chip in whenever I can. When we've uh, finished doing that, we have uh, a wonderful poet who is going to, uh, going to uh, read a smaller, uh, uh, some poetry from a, a book that's about to come out or just come out. Um, and I'll introduce him. He'll read some poetry, and then we'll throw it open to questions. So that's the proceedings for the day. All right, well, I'd, I'd like to um, very briefly introduce each panellist because we can't take time with introductions. We want to hear them. So we start, uh, we start with Gretchen Miller, um, a storyteller par excellence, um, a storyteller in multimedia, really, in radio, in, in uh, film, digital matters, you do... No and, film. No film. <laughs> I no thought film. that the thing you did with Charlie was a film, so it's a radio... Oh, it's a documentary, radio, radio documentary. yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and with social media as well. Um, very, very interested in landscape and in the environment, um, and uh, somebody who has won awards for her programme. Next, we've got Rod Lamberts. Rod's a, an official science communicator. Um, so somebody who has the tough task of taking science out to the world, um, to the public, uh, interpreting it, getting them engaged with it, uh, focusing on it. He's deputy director of the uh, Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU. It would be a great job, um, are you dying any time soon? I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not planning on it, but you never know. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, after that, we have Sophia Bruce, a, a stellar international musician, singer, songwriter, um, a, a curator of music, and an extraordinary talent. Um, what... Sophia has done is quite stunning. I mean, she was she was a curator for the uh, Melbourne Festival of uh, Jazz at the age of what, twenty uh, <laughs> two? Staggering, but also a musician who has um, amazing music that we'll be hearing about. I'd love I'd love to actually hear it, but we'll be hearing about it later on tonight. And then at the end. My old friend, young friend, uh, Don Watson, um, historian, first and foremost, I think, but also uh, a, a social thinker, a social analyst, a traveller, uh, an extraordinary polymath. Don's latest book, which you'll see out there in the, in the foyer in grand numbers, The Bush, is an extraordinary book and it's won a major prize already. So Don um, will be talking to us primarily from a literary perspective. Okay, so to kick off, I'm going to ask each of you a question, and then uh, I'm hoping you might get a conversation going between yourselves, because I don't want it just to be panel and listening to the bloke asking his, his flaccid questions. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to, start, going to start with you, Gretchen. I'm going to ask you about, you, you've just uh, done a program or you have done a documentary 
with someone I've written about as well. That's Charlie Verin, I think one of the greatest uh, coral scientists and scientists in this country, an amazing man. But you're a storyteller, and you are going to, or have told a story about science. How do you do it? What do you focus on when you're talking to someone like Charlie? It's really hard when you're making a documentary about climate change, as I think a lot of people will understand, to get a fresh angle on it. Um, It's quite a difficult thing to pin down, you know, was that storm climate change or was it just a storm, that kind of thing. Um, For quite some time now in the documentaries and the features I've been making, which are all radio, and I, I really believe in the power of the voice and storytelling through the voice alone... um, But one of the things that I've been asking scientists about for some time is not uh, about the facts and figures, because I think people's eyes glaze over with facts and figures, Um, but I want to know how these people, in in, in particular with this documentary then, carry the burden of knowledge that they have. So rather than what was the most recent thing you found, what was the most recent statistic you have uh, that proves the point... um, what do you feel about what you know? So you're walking around every day with this in your mind. Um, how does it hit you emotionally? So I looked up um, Charlie Veron, um, who spoke incredibly movingly and passionately and honestly about this, and it hasn't yet gone to air, so you'll be able to hear it at the end of the month, um, Ove Ho Goldberg um, as well, who's a great reef yeah. scientist, and then a couple of younger, younger scientists as well who, who look at climate science. And I asked them, well, how do you feel? You know, and in unfolding that, I think... I hope that you'll make a connection with the audience that goes beyond the glazing over, that, okay, these people really take this so seriously, it's impacting them. Charlie, in the sort of uh, cone of this room, told me that he drinks heavily, I think. Um, Other people also mentioned wine as a panacea. Um, And, and, you know, this is heartbreaking, actually, but it's a measure of how serious things are. But I wanted to tell that story through an emotional lens rather than you know, something that just makes people turn around and turn away. And I wanted then, therefore, people to kind of emote and connect to those stories. And that's the power of it, I think, is connecting and emoting with... Mm. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to move on and ask Rod, because technically you're a, a communicator of science. So I'm likely to be working with uh, scientific organisations, CSIRO, NICTA, Academy of Science, or whatever... Um, presumably, then, is your world the world of reason, where you're translating scientific, uh, you know, complicated scientific things into accessible scientific things, or do you actually shun that kind of approach? Um, is my world a world of reason? Yeah. No. <laughs> can, I, can I first thank you for calling me an artist, too? I'm quite flattered by that. Yeah. Because I've not been called one except by my father. He used to say, you're an artist, all right, you're a bullshit artist. That's as, <laughs> that's as much as I could get out of him. Um, no, oh, is my world full of reason? I'm surrounded by it. Um, and I think, I'm not going to get philosophical about this. I spend most of my time saying to scientific people, if I can summarise it, what are you actually trying to achieve and who are you trying to achieve it with? And, how, and then how will you know if you've done it? And quite often they will begin to couch such things in very technical terms and they will quite naturally fall back on their science. 
Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. They will speak in terms of their science. Um, and they will come to me saying, people need to know more about climate science. I say, do they? Why? Well, because we have a problem here, and this is going on, and this is a problem, and we need to change our behaviour. So you have to say to them, they don't need to know more about climate science, do they? They need to know more about why they should be motivated to change their behaviour. They need to be motivated. So I often end up helping them tell stories, or encouraging them to tell stories, or sending them to people who are better at it than me, for example, probably everyone here, to learn how to do that. So I suppose I spend a lot of time asking them that, and I spend a lot of time calming their nerves and saying, if you don't get across 98 facts in this discussion, it's going to be okay. If you get across two and a little bit of motivation, then yay you, that's probably good enough. That's two more than they had before. So a lot of the stuff I do out in the public domain is actually getting people up, putting a drink in their hand, getting a bit drunk. This is technical people. Encouraging them to get comfy. Alcohol is a thing. Alcohol is a thing. I don't think it's going to diminish... But encouraging them just to tell a story about that and people walk away going, that science person was kind of fun and had a funny story. Often and, that's enough. And you do, you did have a program called Kinda Thinking. Oh, that, it's the, the Wholesome Show Club. now. We've moved up to the Wholesome Show. <laughs> Similar idea. That was where you were described as, as dealing with the underpants of history. Rummaging in the undies of society's hairiest issues, it may yeah, have been. Yeah, that's it. That's, that may I have come up. I knew my kind of guy. <laughs> but that's what we try and do. We want to we be irreverent about it. We want to make it human. And not enough people make it human by well, being little, little shits about it, quite frankly. So we do a bit of that underneath all the seriousness. Sophia, you can uh, and do move people to tears and to ecstasy by your voice and your music. Um, but you're also someone I know who uh, is willing to be an activist, who goes and goes to demonstrations and uh, actively speaks out about the Barrier Reef, uh, something I'm passionate about. I wanted to ask you, is there a connection between your music and your activism? Thank you for the embarrassing introduction. Um, so, well... Um, I suppose my relationship to music was one of... It's always been one of bemusement because I wasn't necessarily someone brought up just to be primarily a performer or a musician. My parents were sociologists. I grew up with a real interest in many different things and it just so happened in um, our tertiary system we get funneled into certain vocational directions. But I have a broad interest in many things like everyone here, I'm sure. Um, Coming out of school I was very interested in music I studied jazz and improvisation the skill of improvisation that's inherent in jazz is something that I think is applicable in every day and every every moment of life in terms of having to momentarily respond to things and apply that which you know as best as you can Um, but as I got more involved in music that moved into curating and creative directing and artistically directing festivals and working with lots of different kinds of people on projects that I cared about and a part of that is communicating of course and working within a system an organ of people in order to bring something about so in order to do that you have to be able to contextualize and frame things according to what people's backgrounds are and that may have been what really, I suppose, brought me to Greenpeace because I've been quite involved, less so recently because I've been out of the country, unfortunately. But I met with David Ritter, the CEO, several years ago and found myself as a much fabled story between the two of us um, on a, 
a helicopter um, above the Carmichael uh, coal mine uh, with um, an Aboriginal elder and a, a journalist from The Guardian about 24 hours later. So I really jumped in there quickly. Um, <laughs> but I suppose I just felt I, perhaps the fearlessness that one has to develop as an, a, a certain kind of artist, one can apply across everything they do. And I knew that I was very concerned and I felt that there was a disproportionate amount of action or mobilisation versus what seemed to be such a major risk around the Great Barrier Reef and, and issues related to it. And I wondered why that was. And I didn't think it was because people didn't care. I thought it was be because we weren't seeing... Because the, the framing of the discourse was being skewed and um, perhaps there just had to be a way of mobilising. So that was what the started my involvement. Thanks, Sophia. Don, um, you've written about the bush, and uh, <clears throat> you're a boy from the bush. And in that book, you address the bush in a number of registers. One of them is kind of gritty and down-to-earth and very much about physical um, observation. The other is a much more, uh, I suppose, transcendental. The bush as a, as a sublime idea, the bush as, some, as a feeling. Um, Obviously, the, 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 so I want to ask you two questions, really. One is uh, the, the different negotiations between those two things. But the other is, is this, is this book an elegy for the book? I mean, you know, we're all headed, we're told, into mega and mega and mega cities. Is, the, is this an elegy for the book? Um, probably. I never thought of it as an elegy, but it is in a way. Um, it's just, uh, but that might be just normal melancholy. I mean, <laughs> I, um, I think it, I mean, you, let me put it this way. What, what joins those two registers, I suppose, is the idea that, and I think as we become more urbanised and more denatured, we increasingly see the bush. We, we look for, you know, representational sorts of, pretty patterns of the bush. We want to understand it in those ways. What I felt like I was doing in that book was trying to discover what's underneath it. I mean, in other words, at times a bit of a Francis Bacon, you know, upset it. Um, put, you know, an eye where an ear should be. And, because if you, if you, the more you look at the bush, I probably don't look at it the right way, but the more you do the more you see that it, it doesn't follow all those patterns. We need the patterns. I mean, I'm sure we're hardwired for these patterns because yeah. otherwise we'd be dead. Yeah. We've got to recognise what that sound means and what that thing looks like uh, because last time it bit us, you know, um, or it took someone we knew. Now, I, I think we sort of... I think what I love about being in the bush or watching the bush is all those aleatory things that just sort of evolve before your eyes. At the back of my place in North Fitzroy, which is hardly the bush, there's a big stink pole, you know, coming up from the sewer. It's about, you know, 20 metres high. And quite often a crow sits on it and puts his head down and carks into it just so he can get the echo effect, you know. <laughs> and it's fascinating, you know, and he thinks he's very funny. He does it again. If you look at birds particularly, you find they have personalities. And I was talking to an expert on invertebrates the other day who came to a children's party to show them various invertebrates. And uh, 
I said, because once a huntsman spider jumped on me twice, leapt at me from a wall. And I said, and she was saying they were harmless. And I said, actually, they, surely they have personalities. And she said, of course they do. You know, they do. I mean, that's a part of their adaptation, is their personalities. So uh, what I was trying to do, and this hardly probably answers your question, but it, instead of looking for, for whatever represents you know, a picture of nature, I was looking for the personality of it. Yes. Including the human, I suppose. I mean, what, what is it that animates it? And you can only find that by observation, by really watching a lot and being tuned to it. And it's very hard to find anybody within 10 miles of me now who looks at anything. Anything. You know, the weather, nothing. You know, they still haven't worked out living in Melbourne that the weather comes from the west. I'm not kidding. Oh, does it? Well, have you noticed the clouds are always going that way? No. We are really... We have no idea left, I don't think. Yeah. So, I, I wanted to ask you a common question now, and it's, um, it's one that is, I know, in many ways, it occupies David Ritter's mind. It certainly occupies my mind. I've, I've written a book about the Great Barrier Reef and... Uh, it's a passionate book, and I'm passionately worried about the reef, as a lot of people are here. One of the things that is, is really worrying is the incapacity of the science to persuade large numbers of people about the truth. This, is, uh, this uh, conversation we're having is called Art and Truth. But... Scientists are marshalling incredible amounts of fantastic evidence and working very, very hard to demonstrate the truth. But there is, it seems, everywhere in Australia, but you know, everywhere in the Western world, a kind of resistance to this. So I want to ask you each in turn um, what, what you attribute this to and what you think your particular let's call it a muse, I've, I've said you're artists, you've each got a muse, um, can do about it. Can we start with you, Gretchen? I, I think that you have to ask people to look, actually. Um, I think you have to ask them. So something that I've done and it's work that I love doing is asking the RN, the Radio National Audience, to... Well, the most recent project in which I did this was called Hot Summer Land and I asked people to write me three stories over the period of the summer and describe their landscape and how it changed. But I've also asked them to tell me about their relationship to birds and also to trees and think about a tree that they've loved, a tree that holds a story for them, that, has a, that they have a relationship with. And I've actually had people say to me, I'm really glad you asked me that question because I thought about a tree I haven't thought about for a long time or I spent time observing my landscape and noticing how it changed and that was a really wonderful experience and talking about the weather I, I'm just working on a story now which is uh, written by a woman who talks about watching the ants and the birds to know what she should wear for the day and whether she should bring the washing in so I think people do um, listen but you but if you want them to engage actively with these really vitally important issues, then you you have to invite their stories to you and in paying attention to them 
and honouring them and their lives and asking them things that perhaps aren't particularly challenging but that might make them then think about challenging things, then you, you invite them to, to listen and to take note. And, and I think that connection, that emotional connection, then allows them to connect with the other stuff. I, I just think humans are not logical, rational beings. We right. think we are, we're not. So you actually have to connect with their emotional responses. Hammering away at them with facts and figures and the, and the true horror of things is not going to work to get a groundswell. You need to tap into their feelings. So you're saying, and I'm tossing this to Rod or anybody, I, I'm, oh, happy, I'm, I'm to, happy to... I'm happy to... Uh, what I wanted to do is to ask about the story. I mean, is, the, is part of the problem that, we, that, that, the, that the scientists are not telling a story? big part of the problem is calling it a science problem. Really? I think that's one of the biggest problems with this whole thing, is calling it and characterising and framing it as a science problem. And that I'm not supposed to say that probably, or at least when I first started in this realm I shouldn't, but it's not. I mean, the, the science, I can't say the science is settled. We know we're screwing things up. We know we're causing trouble. More facts piled on top of more facts piled on top of more facts tells us nothing new. It certainly doesn't sway people who don't believe the facts, and I don't understand why some of the predominant rhetoric is, OK, then more facts, because <laughs> it doesn't work. The one thing we can show you is that doesn't work. That's not complicated to demonstrate. And there's this classic attitude that isn't often made explicit, which is if we educate people, we'll motivate people, and they will act in a way that I act because I understand these facts. And so coming to your point about whether people are rational or not, people are totally rational and logical, but what they base their rationales and logic on aren't always things we would accept as fair facts, and they're frequently not science. And I include scientists in this, any scientists in the room, you're normal people and you're as irrational as the rest of us. And this is something that we need to embrace and get on with. So characterising it as a science problem, I think, is currently and turning into one of the biggest problems with this whole, I'll say problem again, this whole issue of environment and motivating people, etc. So is that where you ask a farmer, say, to observe their, to tell, the, tell you something about their landscape um, and, and tell you what's changed about it and tell you what they've changed in their landscape and how that landscape's responded to them? And then, you know, by listening to them speak about what they know and what they understand of the place around them, you also are asking them to, under, you know, to acknowledge that understanding and to pay attention to you know, places mm. that are really important to them as much as they are to anyone else. I think so. And look, the mistake with the science is calling it science too. If you're talking with these people, these people, the non-science evil folk out there, if you're talking to these people <laughs> and they... Um, what did Hillary call them? Oh, the basket of deplorables? Yeah. That's what Hillary called them. I'm not saying yeah. that. <laughs> but if, if, if you're talking to these folks who aren't accepting the science and you're getting frustrated because they're not accepting the science, it doesn't matter. If you're talking to them in a way that makes sense to them, resonates with their values, they can see it unfold in practice, you're getting somewhere. And I would argue, and I often do sometimes with a great ill effect, with my peers anyway, don't say the damn word science. If you, I'll take that, no, I'll, I'll rephrase that. If, if your job is to make people go, yay, science is excellent, that's fine, I have no problem with that, and a lot of my colleagues are into that. If your job is to make people act or encourage people to act in a way that resonates with what the science is telling us, that's a whole other thing. And there's many more bows to that quiver of an arrowness. This is where we need the wordsmiths to come in. Yeah. It's, it's, it is a bit of a shame, though, because, you know, to step away from a fundamental, like, science, it's, it shows the, the efficacy or the, the successes of the denier movement. 
which is that um, they, they, they added such a toxic element and such a disruptive hostility to the discussion, which was done very specifically and insidiously in the timing of the IPCC papers and everything, that at the exact time that these fundamental papers were coming out, there were press conferences held, and of course the major press agencies love it, because of course we're seeing what's fed to us by the mainstream media, much of which is owned by the, the, the mining owners. But um, it's, it's been a very specific and systematic Render, well, extraction of meaning. So we're in a very hostile domain to, to begin with. Um, so the way of... The, the difficult thing is what we're seeing in US politics, for example, and I've been following this a bit more closely because I, I live in America much of the time, is that I suppose a response to that has been that in terms of the Clinton campaign and also the Obama administration, a lot of the discussions around terms like climate change, people aren't using that term anymore. It's all about green energy policy. And so what that shows is both uh, a flexibility of moving around the the locus of the debate, but it also shows just how successful the, the the deniers have been in really poisoning the, the locus of reason around expert opinion, and that's been done very successfully. Yeah. Don't. But, uh, by doing that, they're locating it in self-interest, aren't they, really, by saying, well, through renewables, your children might get a job, and uh, we can be great again, or we can do any of those things. I mean, I think that American election is a good example. I mean, if people have figured that really the vast majority of voters think with their emotions, not with their yeah. brains, yeah. and they think as groups rather yeah. than as, as, as thinking individuals very often and farmers particularly. I mean, my father, who was a farmer, believed in climate change 30 years ago, but he would never go and tell anybody. Um, He didn't believe in it for any scientific reason. He just noticed that things were changing. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, uh, the other parallel might be, if you think about, you know, Britain before the Second World War, John Lukash's Seven Days in May, where this survey was going on of what British attitudes were to the rise of Nazi Germany and fascism in Europe, right up until Dunkirk. Uh, they hadn't really noticed and were not doing anything about it. And there are descriptions of the troops coming back from Dunkirk with bits of them hanging off and people playing cricket on the greens and, yes. and as if until it actually hits them, you know. It, it is, has to be sort of rooted in experience or in an emotion like fear before it'll start to work. It, it feels like as a sum... I mean, the, the, I guess the... the uh, way of coming at it through talking about the majesty, the majesty of nature and, and calling on that emotive side is a really important one. But I guess it's also then speaking to the psyche and the zeitgeist of the times, which is in the American election, most voters, registered voters, are counting the economy as being one of the, you know, the top-tier issues. Yes, yes. And Yale did this whole you know, um, set of research, which I'm sure many have seen, which said something like um, 17% of registered voters, or 17% of the population saw climate change as being a top-tier election issue, and I think a further 45% or something were aligned to that. But within that 45% of the concerned and the cautious, only 50% of them thought that that was the sort of thing that would sway them to voting for someone in particular. That seeing a leader who was wishing to um, act on climate change is a reason to vote for that leader. So... um, and it wasn't mentioned in the debates, was it? No. Was it raised at all, once even? Today, once today it was. Hillary did, yeah. Right, right. Oh, but good for her. Afghanistan wasn't raised either, because <laughs> it's so remote. <laughs> yeah. You know, unless they hear the sound of gunfire, 
Yes. Or there are landslips sort of burying them alive or the water's turned off. I mean, they're not really going to be able to concentrate on it for long. It reminds me what you were saying about... The, there's a story about Commander Neville at the, at the Somme um, who issued his platoon with six footballs and said the first man to dribble the football into the German trenches would win a prize from him. And, of course, Hooray. they jumped up and they just went squish um, as, the, as the bullets hit them. But it, but it, is, it is a kind of... I mean, it's one, of, uh, one of the things are we saying that people have to actually encounter uh, a, 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 some kind of a, a catastrophe to change their minds? Is it possible to change people's minds with a story... Um, Rather than ha- than have to than have to see somebody's house fall into the water, or, or well, we saw people's houses fall into the water yeah. at Collaroy this yeah. summer. Um, every year or every few years, we have major bushfires. Yep. Do people move out of the bush? No, they don't. I mean, you know, Don could talk about this. Do they even remember? I mean, there's a there's a kind of a national forgetting that until we have another. Um, El Nino summer, that the, the country's going to burn again. We forget every time, and then we're heartbroken every time. It's like goldfish memory. So I don't even know if ha- being hit by an actual disaster is the thing it that, to be that a works. Continual natural disaster. <laughs> every well, 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it won't work. So the, nature won't cooperate in this. It keeps sending ambiguous sen- signals. Yeah. You know, we get a cold winter in Melbourne. That's yeah. the end yeah, of then climate it's change. The finish. For, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, can I ask a question? Though? Who's they? Yeah, we're all talking about them. It's us. Yeah, who's us. they? It's us. Because this is a real mistake that we fall yeah. into, and I'm not calling anyone here bad people, but and I do it too. We fall into this. If only they were different. I mean, yeah. this is, a, I assume, a room full of environmentally motivated folks. I'm sure there's heaps of things you could do better. I'm sure you've got a bit of guilt all the time, you know. There are certain things I do that could be more environmentally aware. So calling, out, calling them on their behaviour and how we can fix them is already part of a mindset that doesn't work so well. What about the problem... I mean, it's a problem that I encountered in, when I was writing The Reef, that uh, I was going to finish it just with Charlie Varon. It's such a desperately pessimistic story that I, I felt, look, people are going to just uh, feel impotent or feel or, or become fatalistic and say, bugger it, you know, we might as well and wreck the environment while we're alive because there's nothing we can do. And so I, I did a kind of self-consciously more upbeat uh, ending. I mean, it's not completely upbeat. But I had this fear that the, that the kind of narrative that we're using, the apocalyptic narrative about nature could be counterproductive. What do you, what, what do you think about that, Sophia? Um, I think it plays into the hands of the fossil fuel lobby uh, because I think that that renders us passive. It makes me think a bit of um, John Ralston Saul who talks about like the um, coercion of inevitability, which is that if you feel something's beyond your yeah. control, then you're kind of rendered passive. And I think it's, just, it's, it's something that is propagated because it benefits that lobby very much. I mean, I think that as I think as much as calling on the emotive and activist side of of us is important, I think the economic side is absolutely yeah, yeah. actually the most important driver at this point. Um, 
in, in, in collaboration with, moving alongside with speaking of the majesty and the beauty of the world because thankfully through a lot of the advancements of the last few years, the economics are on the side of renewables. Yeah. So um, that was something, I went and saw Bill McKibben speak a few weeks ago in, in New York on a panel and, and that was something that a bunch of people were a little bit disappointed wasn't spoken about more, which is that this is now actually becoming a very practical economics focused um, uh, part of the debate and I heard on the radio I just got back from New York last week and the day I got back they were announcing the developments around the Great Australian Bite and some politician was lamenting that 100 workers jobs had been lost as a result of that development and I just couldn't and that was the soundbite of the story yeah. that, that 100 workers jobs had gone when you consider that I think last year you know that there were like 2.5 million new jobs just in in solar PV industry. So that, I feel like that arm of the debate has to be getting out so much harder and more aggressively in the mainstream media because probably a lot of people, and uh, and it's everyone we know it well, people close to us would think, oh, well, this is just what's, we, we have to keep progressing. We have to, you know, we can't shut down the coal industry, but actually there's a, the, the strongest argument yet that that's not the case, and that has to get into the, the collective psyche. What about trees? Trees? Yeah, the cutting down of uh, cutting down of, of old forests. Well, again, I mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think it's in our natures. I was yeah. talking to the um, the man who runs the National Herbarium um, a few years ago. It was a fascinating fellow. But he, he decided after years of watching how much gets wiped out in Australia that it, it, it must be serving some psychological need, particularly in Queensland, where, the, where the <laughs> psychology is maybe a bit different. But they, I mean, they are still clearing. And, yeah, and I think yeah. it really... I don't, I don't want to be cynical about this, but if, if you can build a bulldozer with a blade that's about a quarter of a mile wide and it's got 800 horsepower, then you'll use it. Yeah. That that, that ambivalence started with, uh, you know, I'm really interested in that idea about our fear of trees in particular, actually, and it's that whole thing of encroaching nature and keeping nature at bay. But um, uh, there's, you know, there's some thinking around um, Gilgamesh, you know, he... Mm actually had a sort of a war against the forest. He stood in the city, he looked out at the forest, he was threatened by its fecundity, and he, he asked the gods whether he could go and cut the trees down. Uh, it's a human thing. I mean, it's not just a Queensland or Australian thing. It's, it's a human anxiety about trees. And you'll still meet people today who just feel frightened at the sight of something very large with a limb that you know, the widow maker that could fall on them. Well, I think it certainly it should be understood cosmologically anyway, you know. What came to me writing that book about the bush was that you can't separate it from religion. You right. know, I don't mean that, you know, they took literally, although they often did, it was the justification, you know, the injunction in the Old Testament to, you know, be fruitful and multiply and the earth was there to to exploit. So they, they actually, as I said, you know, they, they actually destroyed the Australian environment with the best of themselves not the worst i mean they thought they were doing it yeah. as a wonderful service yeah. and you can't there were others who saw it differently there's always one or two out of every 500 but they they were driven by it and somehow that that whole religion has to be turned around and 
I mean, that's the one thing to learn from Aboriginal society, is that yeah. it, it is that cosmological lesson, that you live with it rather than pit yourself against it. And it's, it's not dying. And when I mention Queensland, I, you know, I'm, it's an easy joke to make, but they do have taken longer to wake up to this, and they have a long history of ripping the land apart. I mean, they... That, it, and legislating for it, too. Oh, yeah, they're yeah. fierce about it. I don't know whether I, I feel like that's like a, a deep psychopathology of humankind. I think it's just about deep pockets. I just think it's about <laughs> people making money. And, you know, the rubber barons in the Amazon, they made money yeah, from yeah. it. But most of, the, most of the forest in Australia was destroyed by smallholders with axes and saws. It was destroyed by selectors, those honourable pioneering folk. They did far more than the, than the logging companies or any of the others. They... They tore it down so that they could have little farms for their families. And they were sponsored the whole way. Governments gave them huge subsidies to do this. That's what an improvement, what improvement was, was destruction. I think, actually, you could make an easy equation and say governments should now renovate the Australian landscape in the same financial proportion that it was torn apart. Yeah. Can, well, can I make a comment on that? Yeah. Back to this despondency issue, or that's what I'll call it, you know, this notion that people have given up. It, a, that completely rational response, uh, as we sort of discussed, if, if everything looks like crap and you can't do anything about it, you give up. And there's a lot of psych research that's showing um, young children in, in grade school, American equivalent in here, have kind of given up and are suffering from quite deep anxieties. There's evidence of this because they're getting the whole rhetoric of we're all, we're all screwed. And so I agree it's better to try and start to sell a more positive narrative, what we can do, etc. That in itself can get you in a lot of trouble. So um, I was chatting with some climate folk, that doesn't really narrow it down, in the recent past, and I said to them, can you give me any positive stories? Is there anything we're doing right? Is there any benefit to the crap that's happening right now? Because, again, you know, you've got to shake it up and see if we can change that narrative. And I don't know if they couldn't see one, but they wouldn't say. They refused to say, well, you know, the upside is the, the beach season will get longer, you'll have skiing in a place that's now you know, desert. I mean, I'm exaggerating to make a point. But, you know, allowing people to make positive comments is also something that's not necessarily... We, we don't have permission to do that quite often. No. Or, or the kind of positive comments you make are, are, are very bounded. So I think we have an issue there. And this brings me, I'll stop now, uh, an issue, the great issue of the ethics of all this stuff, who you talk to and how, is, is huge. And, and I'll, I'll just lob that in and back away. It's interesting making this documentary on the climate of despair because I, I was looking to give voice to my own feelings of anxiety about, um, you know, what is just coming down upon us like a tidal wave. Um, so I started off and that was going to be the program. But I did end up, you know, sort of saying to people as I, as I was interviewing them, well, is there any hope? And to my great surprise... Even Charlie said, you know, my saviour is this website I'm making which yeah. will inform everybody about Coral. Um, Ove has his institute, which, you know, he's incredibly positive. Yeah. I spoke to Katerina Gator, who's um, Raymond Gator, right, the philosopher's right, yeah. daughter, um, and she did personal battle with these issues and that feeling of despair and hope and apocalypse. And, you know, she spent quite a lot of time uh, making her own life as green as possible and helping other people to make their lives as green as possible, but still she would sort of come down into this state of, of depression. She's now starting a kind of a, a Tupperware-style dinner party chain 
um, like a chain letter where you right. hold a dinner party and you have the deep conversation, but also you talk about your ability to act democratically. And, you know, and then a few people will be inspired from that party to go on and have their own party. And in this way, she's sort of... She's having several a week now in, in Victoria. Um, spread, the, spread a deeper conversation, but spread a conversation about acting democratically, not just about living green yourself, but taking action by acting democratically. And apparently, you know, 26% of us are deeply concerned about climate change. Only 10% of us have ever written a letter about it or taken some kind of democratic action. Um, She wants to double that, triple that, actual taking action democratically, not individually. And she says it's the only thing that gets her up. And, And I must say, having heard her say that... Instead of, you know, just ha- at least feeling confirmed in my misery, yeah. I did start to feel the tiniest <laughs> bit of optimism that maybe things can change. Well, um, and, and seeking that optimism is quite important. And my editor, my EP, allowed me to then broadcast this second program, you know, two programs, because I was able to explore something that may give us all a bit of energy. Well, well, Sophia's point about the fact that the economy is working our way. I mean, it may not be evident to a lot of people yet, but... Well, I'm an optimist in the sense that, I mean, it's... Uh, I think most people, most of the time, given the choice, will choose to take a step that will be less disastrous and less destructive. And so, therefore, so much of the issue is just what we think is available to us as a choice. Right. Um, in terms of our utilities and energy and electricity and, and how we just live, which is why it comes back to just policy and government change around investing in renewables, Australia is just, it's doing such a terrible job of that, really, globally. It's really one of the worst in terms of its investments in renewables. It's worse than, yeah. and I mean, I think New Zealand's at about 80% renewable um, productivity, and uh, this is a country that's really dragging its feet there. Yeah, Yeah, well, do you... But I think that, but given the chance... Given the opportunity, I think most people do care most of the really? time. So it's about introducing opportunity through alternative m- means of, um, of them being able to sort of walk a path that's a bit more righteous in terms of their behaviours. I've got to agree, it's no difference to health, uh, different to healthcare and stuff. It's going to make it easy for people to do something. It's interesting that we, our marvellous uh, administrator here is also uh, runs a, her own theatre company, but at one stage she introduced us a program for the Sydney Environment Institute, uh, which was called Small Changes, and we had a series of, of papers from people just talking about how small things could resonate um, in in your life and in the the meaning of of environmental action. And that was, that's been one of our most successful programs in the sense of how animated the audience was about that, the sense that there were little things we can do. The, one of the problems, I guess, especially it's a, it's a problem of academe, which is a presenting you know, a, massive, a massive problem and <laughs> no obvious solutions for anybody. And I've certainly had that experience myself when doing pessimistic things about the reef and people stand up and say, look, I want to do something. What can I do? And so next year we're going to try and do a project 
in which we're actually going to face that. What, what, can, you actu- what can we actually do? What can we best do uh, for the reef and see what, see what happens, um, even in a, you know, in a very practical and pragmatic way? And presumably that's a bush approach too. I mean, that people do things that, not ne- that don't necessarily have any kind of cosmic significance, but they have a local significance. I think so. I, I mean, there are terrific things happening in the bush, in the Australian farming community, and and um, they get very cross if they, you know, if you paint them all with the same, yeah. the same sort of reactionary brush. But as long as they go on voting National Party, you can't blame <laughs> people. Um, they, um, nothing will change them. I, um, I think part of the problem is that it's one of those things that feels so. It, people would somehow internalise it as, if it's so big, how the hell can I have any effect? Yeah. And if it's so big, I mean, we should also not let governments off the hook here. Yeah. That there has been precious little leadership since Kevin Rudd rolled over and gave up. Yeah. And on big matters, you need leadership. If you go back to John Lukash in the seven days in May, I mean, it was Churchill who turned the thing around. We've had no No. leadership from any... Any government, that's true. That's um, and absolutely it's true. necessary, yeah. and it can it can be the sponsorship of the sort of small things we're talking about, but it certainly needs some government to commit and to get some rhetoric up that might start making people thinking that that, that is no longer questionable this science. But isn't that then again a case of awakening people to their ability to take democratic action? So not just acting individually, but um, using their individual power to to influence democracy. Because it is a little bit pointless, you know, buying the green coffee and and recycling your waste, although it makes you feel a whole lot better. Um, isn't that isn't that what it's about? Is is getting people to realise that they can act democratically and empowering them to do to do that? Can I, I agree, and let's take it further. Um, I've done this before, and some scientists have liked me, and some have been furious. I say to them, if you really mean this, the stuff that you're terrified about, and I've spoken to climate scientists, as I'm sure we probably all have, who are pretty much in tears when they tell you how frightened they are. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's heartbreaking to see. And so you can see it's genuine. They're, really, they're freaking out. They're absolutely freaking out, which isn't going to be any good for our despondency here. But they are. They're freaking out. They're scared. They're crying. They're horrified. I said, okay, you clearly are moved. You clearly believe what's going on. You're convinced by the data. How far are you prepared to go to push this message? Yeah. So I say, and I've written pieces in, in smaller places, like the conversational websites like this, saying, okay, if, if you mean it, start using the tactics of advertising more thoroughly. Yeah. Start going with the PR professionals. Don't be such a goddamn scientist about it. Don't mm. give everyone all the facts. Stop running down with your caveats. Give them the core message and give them, give them everyone in a way that we know motivates already, like political advertising, whatever it may be. Saying that to people who are very um, technically oriented and have been trained to be that way all their lives is horrifying. Some of them feel liberated and excited. Others are furious. Literally, I love some of the abuse I'll get on discussion boards because it means I'm you know, hitting the mark, not Andrew Bolt-style trolling, but you've got to try and nudge people to think a bit yeah. more. So bottom line is, if you mean it, how far will you go? And I don't see a lot of people stepping up to that. The people have all the knowledge of doing the science. We've seen Greenpeace in its early days, you know, the, the classic image of chaining people, people chaining themselves to, I was going to say to chainsaws, don't do that, uh, bulldozers. <laughs> the next big step is this grand level of making some noise. And I don't see that happening. 
say that say the horror and again again this gets back to that conversation I've been having we laughed about it it's in the program where I said tell me that 90% of the reef is going to be dead by 2030 and it is we've got less than 20 yeah, years right. now that's no matter what we do, actually, that's true. But so if you want to see it, go see it now. But getting them to say it, you know, equivocating left, right and centre and because they don't want to be accused of being frighteners. It's but it's true. And well, that one study, that one study that says, oh, maybe not so much, honestly, screw that one study. If this is where they generally believe they're at, and as they say, they seem to, Say it. I think we've got our panel really going now. Um, sadly, we're out of time for the, con- uh, the conversation. But we just started. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we're going to now, uh, I think, have, a, have a, a finale before we open it up to questions. And there'll be time for questions, and those questions have been very important to us. But at the moment, we're now going to have Bent Selheim, who's academic, a poet, a novelist, a philosopher, another of these incredible multi-skilled and and multidisciplinary people like this panel, um, who's going to read uh, some poetry to us from his newest collection, which is called uh, Awake at the Wheel, Awake at the Wheel, uh, coming out in November. So up, would you like to come up here? And then we'll, we'll do the question. That introduction is, is almost kind of terrifying, actually. I, I, I should be floating three, three inches above the floor at least. Okay, so this is the first public reading of my new book, and I'm extremely excited, I've got to say, to be able to read it to an audience like this. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. So I'm going to start uh, by reading a couple of nature poems and then we're going to veer in the direction of, uh, of metaphysics and coal mining and things like that. The first poem I'm reading is uh, called Musgrave Island Night. It's about a small island, Lady Musgrave Island. It's about 40k off the coast on the Southern Barrier Reef, uh, a persistent theme uh, tonight. And uh, it's a beautiful little spot, and you can actually go camping there uh, during the, the, the season that the, the loggerheads actually come up to lay their eggs on the same beaches uh, from which they were hatched, uh, which is amazing. Anyway, Musgrave Island night. Waking in the unquiet dark, Gaia on the hi-fi, the laboured hit and shift of a loggerhead dragging the sand for a place to lay. She hauls herself up the beach, over rock, dragging midway through the tide marks, digging for hours to deposit this impossible load of mucus golf balls. Each night, the ritual pitching sand inside a hive mind of midnight bird speak, the orphic burbling of the trees. Daybreak turns drop black needles to the ocean. Sundown, sharks glide baitfish in the shallows. Moonlight, the brink of reef, sucks brine from nocturnal breakers, the billowing fibres, breath and salt of vast black Pacific. Shaped to the curve and drift of sense, some internal GPS, a lacework of currents, of stars... Venus, Septentrion, 
the gravity between constellations. What is it pulls at them? What fine thread of moon, of water? Take the measure of a measureless sea, return year on year to the place first dug through sand. This poem's called The Divine Art of Compost. It's dedicated to my friend, uh, the poet Martin Harrison, who died a couple of years ago, uh, also a great environmental campaigner, and Stuart Cook, who's another poet and academic. The master twisted a length of moustache along his gnarled finger, gently regarding the pupil, this bald, bearded, serious young man. Plastic lever-armed contraptions, alien-hatched polymer barrels have no place in the divine art of compost. Certain tenets are adhered to, certain matters of form, the emptiness between heart and lung to turn the sod, share the life of warm earth, birds, critters, each fullness and each vacancy of nomad bush, that all organic matter is but food for smaller things, that time is your friend. Likewise, to rake and sow practices the quiet art of slowness, of leaf and stem, of alluvial underdark, roots alone can see, to gather and return, to compose a city from the mound, bodies which build and inhabit, bodies which lie beneath, and the palm to his shoulder, which is to say, you will become a wise old man of the forest, your beard shall be long to your knees. Early morning, that blue wren, heavy frost, arms hung windless, black bark curled on white ground, gold coins hung to bloodwoods, perches on the grape, drops nimble to weightless, to snatch a carapace of writhing life from the pile, flits off through the banksia and heath. Following her, a high-born chatter of parrots, augury of crow, Steam from the belly's mound lifts lush thermal sweat to their faces, a sumptuous chemistry of season and decay, the air its benediction. They turn together, bow for the sun. It begins with leaching water, the thirst to simpler forms, that all organic matter is but life for smaller things, that time is your friend, bodies which build and inhabit bodies which lie beneath. Okay, I'm going to read you Awake at the Wheel. This is the title poem. It's about the experience of driving past Mount Thorley, which is the two integrated open-cut coal mines in the Upper Hunter. And I'll apologise in advance for my singing voice, which is terrible. Um, One, early morning, pale skin, You wake without coming to, go about (coughs) post-slumber production, outside wit, a bucket. Hooking up the caravan to the back end of your hangover, you sprain a finger on the jockey wheel, red sky at morn, she don't bode well before we hit the highway. Two, driving north nine-fingered, you've got your phone but turned off the map. Let's see where the black tar leads us, due north and putty road, 
skimming out the skirts, oh, another small federation tin, Shaka town, driving on into more, into less. Half-forgotten pubs, fringed and franchised, re-gentrified monarchy, finds the trans-fat Big Mac primary-coloured burbs in middle Australia. Thin edge, a country hedge. Pretty house. Nice mob. Three. Out through the ute-filled borderlands, now mining is money, and tiered truckloads of spoil circle the ring road to abject earth. Yellow gnats ride miniature from bitumen into heart. The heat hangs closer here, sun-baked, whole, white. Don't worry, though, the drive through does bitch and trade. It's just the ice epidemic, a meeting point of highways, a place to chase Sunday afternoon blues, snipping off your lids. Four. Round and round, Saturday night, a dirty business, work in the rigs, Ark Weldon, pissed from Gord, Nye Bent and Crystal Meth, and who in the hell can blame them? The radio is playing Joe Strummer, so you're belting out, Sharif don't like it, vape the roach jar, vape the roach jar, Sharif don't like it. The air, a permanent dusk of swarming particulates on the scale of Exodus, where all fall short of the glory of Reinhardt. Five. The road goes on, but we have to stop. How we pull over, lost. How we should have gone left at the turn-off. How we lost the aggregate, the rubble. And there's one less place for your iPhone to worry about. And still we're tracking the edge of open cut. And you're saying how the local is national, is into nat, is intersect and incest. And that mountain of mine is going on and on like a set from Fury Road. Almost B-grade, it's sublime monstrosity, a beauty of bulk. Brilliant machine, scrub desert skin, realising a metric valley in Starvik excavations till there's no place left to unhitch the van. Backfill. Having turned each surface into tin, dug waterless the sun. Having turned each surface into tin, dug waterless the sun. This poem's called The Experience Machine. Uh, the Experience Machine is the, the name of a thought experiment by the philosopher Robert Nozick, uh, his attempt to refute ethical hedonism. And it's a poem a little bit about, I suppose, the despondency that's been the, the topic of tonight's, uh, much of tonight's discussion and something of the silver linings, I suppose, that one finds within moments of deep despondency. It's the first mistake when the gloom floats in, switching through the channels of late-night television that palindrome of W's, it only casts you down, no matter how bright lit. And lo, the ultra-sharp reflection of the LCD, what God provides as harvest, his curious judgment seems most days more a test, or so you'd like to think. Something apres testament style, having woken in a fugue in a motel room, edging the ocean, beneath the ruins, end of the end. The room is filled with humming objects, and despite customary domestic detail, peach bedspread, aforementioned white good hum, no minibar, but of course a Bible, you otherwise can't quite place it. It's not the night itself, achromatic others, more a problem of reference, self-citation, all the miracles of human intervention, from prophets to apostate, thumbs, shuttles to the moon, funnel into this, 
One dumb stroke of a well-thumbed newspaper, a feature on package holidays, poolside cocktails, plastic palm trees, because you deserve it, your chance to eat hearts on the beach. And the devil's book, what the world will have, whether they will or no, is jammed one quarter history and three quarters CNN. MH370 descends, Nietzsche's dead and Nozick's wrong, and Nitsky advertises plastic headbags on a chat show, and Christ knows the anaesthesia is not going the distance. No matter what time you spend on mental state theories of well-being, sooner or later you've got to towel off. Perch the side of that cracked tub, face the mirror, see. This whole day you've stared and stared, like the world's the sum of your own botched work. And what? Any surprise tonight you're snapped right off your pencil? Emptied, utterly fucked out by it all? Having woken as driftnets from news of the world, trawl the high seas of your cerebellum, and now nothing's left but bycatch. So why wouldn't you pass out to the beach, spend the night raving with a lunatic of a backpacker, a refugee from 60s rapture embedded with the graffiti, blowing great blunt hits, beckoning you over, streetlights pitched, pavilion gone, looming shadow of civilization crumbling beyond the wall, saying... I don't talk about nothing, man. I don't even read the paper. I took them device and dug them down one foot by one foot six and pushed back the sand, man. That's what I did. And tonight of nights, this speaks to you a wisdom beyond compare. Swallow your words, bury yourself, drink it down to sand. And when you're good and baked, swim out past the breakers into that pitching black to float your lungs indeterminate a blob as blobs might be. And this is what you're thinking, Yes. Launch yourself to the fates, see if water boys, what weed sends in thin tentacles up from the deep. And if you're gifted back to sky, back to air, back to the heave of below and above, if you're gifted back to the cities, continents, back to the red lights of Campbell Parade, then ascending the reef and depth from the terrible mouth of Mariana, the angel trumpet blaring stars, A word will shape that dark into the hallowed face of love. Shivering a little as the wind comes up, walking home, DNA of helix rounds in the downhung bark of eucalypts, sweeping the night trees, footpaths shifting, knuckles, undersold, bones of your feet, bare shanks, and all of it utterly foreign and particular, from headland to headland, the colour tuned an orgy of physics, Savage, indivisible hues. Meanwhile, you mutter solemn promises to a future self. To never read below the line. Toss the brochure. Turn out the lights, the JWs, the relatives. To never, never watch the credits. They run all night and say nothing you'll remember. Listen to the morning, you say. Listen to the light. Listen to the only creature talking pure sense. That magpie warbling gospels to a strangeness of coming day. And by such landmarks might you navigate back unto the world. Crash the sofa, TV off, newspapers burned, binned, and drifting into unconsciousness, you figure, wallow a little if it takes you, but you didn't sell the world. You don't have to buy it back. Although, hazily, you have been online shopping and waking some morning hence, you will find yourself in a motel room you recognise but vaguely. It is filled with humming objects. And through the window, the Pacific exhales 
in rolling dumps. Okay. Okay, folks, thank you very much for that. And let's remember that the, uh, the great campaign from 1965 to 1975 that saved the Great Barrier Reef once was driven by a poet, Judith Wright. So thank you for that. <laughs> Questions? Right. Hi. Thanks, panel. My name's Jimmy. I'm from... Arid Lands Environment Centre in Alice Springs, so it's great to be here and thanks for putting this on. Just so I want to say to Don as well, thanks for your book, it was a spiritual experience, very much like Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu for me as well. Um, we've heard tonight science is failing to get the message across, politics is failing, uh, politicians are trying to take the tax deductibility status of environmental groups away, so is it time that there's a spiritual revival movement for the environment? Go for it. Who marks that one? I got a, I got a comment. <laughs> uh, who's that going to appeal to? Uh, this, this is the, the, this is not to denigrate what you're suggesting, but if you're trying to move people who aren't already moved, I'm pretty confident if you walk up to a room full of people who think climate change is a load of shit and scientists are making it up or it's going to ruin their bottom line, you say this is getting to be a more spiritual thing. Um, I think that will backfire. So I'm, I don't think there's a problem with that in principle, but this is the classic case of you'll get people who are, so to speak, already in the church singing together, which is excellent and necessary, but it's not going to move new people. That's my suspicion. So I think there's a danger if you use that kind of language because the kinds of people we're talking about who really need to be motivated are probably going to be alienated by that language rather than embraced by that language. That's one to kick off. Anyway. Next question I, I, over there. Well, We've got more comments. Uh, yeah, oh, I could respond yeah. more yeah. to that. I just wanted to say that I think that it's about appealing to the emotionality of, of the constituents. And there are people who are so emotional that they feel passive and despondent, and I'd hate for us to walk away tonight feeling despondent. Yeah. That's no. The Must optimist not. in me doesn't ever walk away feeling that way. I think that you have to feel activated by the, um, you know, the... Uh, temptation to move that way but it's about appealing to the emotion be it the despondency or the activist and I think that I do cite America I think that if you call on that collective grievance even if that that uh, even if the winner the leader doesn't end up winning a leader can rise up with enough popular interest behind them to boost them who has a visionary opinion around the need to act on the, on these major issues around conservation that that can then completely push and move forward the entire, the, the collective political discourse. And that happened in the American Democratic Party, which is that when Sanders had to endorse, when just before Sanders endorsed Clinton, there was uh, several days of meetings and there was the most uh, radical change to the Democratic position, a platform around the environment that's ever existed. Yeah. And that was done through politic. And so I think the same thing can happen here. We need to have a revolutionary, a visionary leader come up. And I, I actually have great belief in, in the Greens Party and in a bunch of the leaders that they have there. I think the Labor Party is really um, underperforming in this way. But there has to become a, um, a leader to rise up who can mobilise that energy and then push the agenda in the centre uh, polit political regime. There is a spirituality to, you know, there is an individual spiritual relationship, I think, but it, it does start to get a bit scary when you want to mobilise a single sort of spiritual movement. I, personally, I'm quite suspicious of 
all religions. Um, but at the same time, those stories of individual connection to the environment, if you can uh, get people to think about those, then there's a power in that. But, you know, there's, to label it spirituality is a dangerous thing, I think. I think the United it's, States would probably work differently. But it's yeah. comms 101. No, who's your audience? Find out about your audience. Appeal to that audience. And, and I'm just going to push that research agenda there. Just do that. Just do that. But that's you know, bottom line. Don. No, no. There are more questions. And I was just thinking that, I mean, what you're talking about, the Americans would recognise as a great awakening. They've had yeah. a few, you know. And um, we don't think the same way here. I don't think we're a bit more, you know... You know, fond of our sleep. Yeah, but fond of our sleep, and you know, we, yeah, smashed avocado. And yeah. being yeah. laconic is mandatory. You know, so question there and a question there. Yes, I find the uh, thank you for all your contributions. I found the theme especially inspiring, uh, truth and beauty, uh, and uh, also the comments about the people exercising their democratic uh, powers. So I'd like to ask the panel what what uh, examples have you that inspire you about what in, that integrate the truth and the beauty that you see going on and that also that inspire you to take your um, public democratic role uh, or the inspire, that are helping others to do that? What's inspired me? That's a good question. Um, I tell, okay, I'll, I'll give you a tiny little anecdote. My accountant, who's a larger white... I oh, know, I'll just leave it there. You can work out the rest. <laughs> Story tells itself. Uh, my accountant's a larger, rounder, fairly... I, I, he's not right-wing, but he clearly has some fairly conservative views, but he's a very nice guy. He's easy to talk to. Um, my business partner as such, or my shit-stirring show buddy, um, also sees this accountant. And he started talking to me first, this the accountant, saying, oh, this climate thing, yeah, mate, mate, what do you reckon about it? You know, eh, I don't know, mate. And I kind of went... And I backed away. I just sort of said, you know, there's a deduction here and let's talk about it. Off we went. My colleague was speaking with him, and he's more happy to have a fight. So he started talking to this guy, and he kept on talking to this guy, and he answered his questions, and this accountant, who's a good guy again, quite respects both of us, changed his mind. So the beauty of that for me was I actually saw a mind get changed, and then I saw this conversation in emails where he said, you, you, you talked me round. I, I, I actually think this stuff's going on. I think there's stuff that we can do. And, I mean, this isn't you know some huge tale, but... I, He's not the kind of guy you'd expect to change his mind. I'll just say that. So that, to me, was really quite wonderful. It blew me away. Yeah. Just on the business, rather of knowing your audience being comms one, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, wait for the polling before you move. I think that's a let-off for an awful lot of people in power to say, well, it's the audience, therefore I mustn't speak to them in any terms that they may not understand. I mean, it's best if they do understand it. But sometimes you actually need a leader who will put it out beyond them a yeah. bit. And uh, politics, unfortunately, in days of 24-7 media analysis, so-called, and punditry and all the rest, has got worse and worse, even in the, you know, since I left it 20 years ago or whatever. I don't know how... It's hardly worth <coughs> bothering about, and yet we're still fascinated. But if you take... I mean, take Donald Trump... As long as Donald Trump, if Donald Trump can annihilate the entire Republican Party and get, until three weeks ago, within, you know, within reach of the White House, then you would think an argument about um, science, about climate change, could become, I mean, why? why? If, if Trump is unimaginable, but there he is. Yeah. 
So I think what it is is really about building alliances, not putting all your faith in the Greens or anybody else, but sort of finding unlikely allies. Tony Windsor comes to mind yeah. as one who, yeah. you know, is a farmer who turned out to be a very good politician and has got some principles, although he sold his farm to a coal mine, but... Um, <laughs> Well, forgive him that. I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, finding some kind of com- common interest in the story is really what I think politics is ultimately about. Yeah. And it's, but it's, and then and then building the alliance. I mean, if if the Clintons can re- take over the Democratic Party, basically, and and find millions and millions and millions of dollars to do it, then they would be able to tell us something about what you could do where we are sitting now. Um, we just haven't found the allies, I don't think, and I, nor do I think we've found the leader. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you're talking about comms. I mean, Jeff Cousins got rid of guns out of Tasmania in about you know, one and a half days with a bit of advertising now. Bingo. Gone. We've been arguing about that for years. Yeah. You know, there are, there are ways if you've got the right... Leader? Leader, idea, yeah. Hello, I'd, I'd like to thank you, um, the organisers of, of tonight, for inviting members of the public. Um, and a lot of the things that you've said have been so inspiring and I feel the despair and I wonder, and possibly I'm saying something that's been said before, but Don, just tapping into what you said, why can't we have an alliance? There are so many fragmented things that are going on. Gretchen said, I think 25% of people feel passionately about this, but only 11% have written a letter. Instead of having one event here, chain yourself to a tree there, have a protest here, why cannot Greenpeace and ACF and World Wildlife Foundation and the scientists from Sydney University and the scientists from Macquarie and the scientists from UNSW and the reef scientists, why can we not all mobilise together join forces, and, and the indigenous people in the Kimberleys, that we don't need to have a fight about all the little individual differences. There are enough common... I think everything that's been said tonight by everyone on the panel and in the audience I'm passionate about, we have enough in common to ignore whatever the differences are. Can we not get together and make a massive statement? Get those 25% together... So instead of having all these fragmented things, and my inbox and my Facebook is overwhelmed with all the individual little things that are happening, can we not make something massive happen to mobilise, to, to get something changing, to really frighten the politicians, to get the little people talking? I think that's a wonderful... Uh, Intervention, and I and I would really like to think that that was the case. What would the panel like to? How would you like to respond to that? Sure. I mean, it's, it's mobilising behind something as well, because what you do want when you're provoking that much energy and put it into something, you want there to be an output. So, what are we mobilising around? What are we calling on? What's the next step? So, I think that that's a really important thing in terms of common aim. Is it calling on the politicians to feel like their jobs are, are you know in danger if they don't act on it? It, it probably is, but at the moment, that it's not sitting as one of those central election political issues at, at the moment because we're encouraged not to think for it to be. I think that things are going to have to get maybe worse before they get better. I feel like other countries are going to probably take the lead on this 
um, and then Australia will probably follow. I wish that wasn't the case, but I, I don't feel like I'm seeing revolutionary change coming from within the political system here. And, um, and it might be a matter of the global community placing enough pressure, like in the realm of our refugee policy and what we're doing in that area. I think it's a very similar complacency that's existing, and it may be international diplomatic pressure that's going to push us to move, which doesn't mean that we're all terrible and, and should feel despondent, but it's about looking practically at the political systems that are going to move things. I've got another suggestion, of course. Um, I agree with that, but I think it's, it's a really simple one. I haven't seen this done before. If there are this many people, and there appear to be, if they all put, you know, a dollar in the pot, so to speak, run these ads. Like, run regular, consistent ads that say... Like, you know, do your axe the tax, stop the boats, screw up, whatever it was he did. Do your three-slogan thing that's relevant to climate change. Like, it's happening, we can do something, we need you, whatever it may be. Get all these disparate groups then to chuck some money at a coherent, consistent advertising, so to speak, campaign. I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen that ever, and it perplexes me why not. Get up, get up, does that. Get up. I don't see them on the pay TVs. I don't see them on my free-to-air channels. And get up, I don't think, is the organisation to do it because they piss as many people off as they don't. So if you're trying to galvanise, again, if there are all these people, and I, I believe you and I, I think they are, I think that's one way to do it. The other thing I'd add is there's nothing wrong also with all these little bits being done because I'm hoping there's also change by accretion here. And there are more and more events like this. There are more and more people talking, more and more people writing. I've painted a bleak picture of terrified scientists, but there's also as many of them who are really keen. They're getting up. They want to change their mode of delivery. They want to interact with audiences beyond their own peers. So that accretion model coupled with everyone throw a dollar in the pot, let's do some ads. I mean, mate, I haven't seen it tested. I suspect it might be useful. One of the things that I've just asked a question in a minute, but just to, to say something, and that is that it strikes me that one issue, and obviously it's a vested interest that I have, but is the reef. The reef is as big as England and Ireland put together. It is the largest phenomenon you can see from outer space. It's the largest or organic system in the world. And it belongs to Australia. If we knock it out, we'll knock out about a third of the diverse biodiversity of the Pacific. Now, why can't we... Because that's exactly what Judith Wright did and said. The reef is a symbol of everything that we should be caring about. And they concentrated on one, one area. And, of course, the reef is rainforest as well as... As, as water, as fish, and m m much else. It happens to be in, largely in Queensland, which is a complication. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> let, us, um, let us move on to the question. Uh, well, yeah, it might be... Maybe that is the galvanising issue with the Adani Carmichael mine coming up again. It, it may be the galvanising issue. Uh, um, but my question was... Um, we talked a lot about narratives and um, climate denial science, uh, well, climate denial. Um, one of the narratives that I haven't heard spoken about and I'd like to see, we've been trying to fight climate denial sci um, denialists with science and facts and saying that's not working. What about telling the story about where cli climate denial has come from, about how it's actually been funded by... The, the big oil and mining companies. We, if we can tell that story about how that 
that narrative is actually being created, then it might help some people see through the veil. It's just not a story I've seen really told, and I wonder if that's something the panel could discuss. I think it's it is. I think it has been written about quite a bit, but perhaps, I mean, within Australia, a lot of the the interest, the people behind the mainstream media have a, a very di- direct and interest in just not telling that story. You know, which is why, so not just in terms of climate science, but you don't hear about mass rallies. They're not even being like reported on in different parts of the political spectrum or in activism. People just aren't even being told it. So it's a very difficult thing because the, those who already know are being told it again and again and those who don't know aren't, aren't seeing it. And how do you begin to breach that? How do you move into a media accountability? I sort of feel like that's a major issue across the board here, which is that we're getting... In, for the, in, because of the 24-hour news cycle and because of the, you know, this, the ubiquitous wall that needs to be filled with content where you're looking at, like, you know, cats stuffed into jars next to kids in Syria and, you know, uh, memes. We've lost... that. There's dilution in the discourse because the media is so spread out now. So it's... Um, and what we see is controlled by algorithms, you know, what we see, which is also a really problematic question because how do you focus a, a communicated line when it's being controlled by... It's incredibly hard. I mean, experiments are being done, you know, with Facebook to try and find a message, you know, that's alternative to your own, for example, and and you can actively go looking for it and not not be able to find it. So, you know, that whole Facebook thing's another very disturbing issue. Murdoch doesn't help. We also don't hear when it works, though. I was on a panel recently up here, um, and one of the people on it was a a researcher in... a researcher of anti-vaccination folk and the whole movement. And she asked a little quiz at the beginning of the night, and it was, it was everyone suspected that the, the vaccination rates were dropping, everything was horrible, things were getting worse. And it turns out, actually, vaccination rates are increasing. The pockets of, of anti-vaccination are de- decreasing. But you don't hear that story told. Um, and part of that was, I believe, because stories about people like Meryl Dory, the head of the Australian Vaccination Network, in huge inverted commas, got exposed. She debated Bob Brown and all these sorts of things started to come out. So part of what you were saying, I've lost in the crowd. Um, but also we don't hear the stories where these little bits and pieces actually tend to sneak ahead because I hadn't heard that this vaccination thing was changing, for example. So there might be more going on. So maybe added to that is telling the stories where stuff is shifting in a positive direction. We don't see them. We've got a question over there. Hi, uh, two things. I think, um, well, actually earlier you were talking about us and them and I'm a gardener. And to be honest, socially, we don't consider ourselves to be part of the environment at all. You see that, I see that so often where I walk in, people go, how do I care for my grass? Fuck, man, you water it. Okay? (laughs) And and then you cut it. (laughs) So I think that that's probably the biggest issue about getting people involved with the environment and climate change because people don't consider themselves as to be part of the environment at all. And secondly, I'd like to ask, when there is an issue so big that is so completely out of your realm, how do you take that on? Because I'd like to take on Fukushima and the fact that that's now totally infected a third of the Pacific Ocean. It's great to hear you talk about the Barrier Reef and the coal mine, but guess what? That's a ticking time bomb. And that is the whole yeah. ocean. Yeah. So how, how do you take on that issue? Um, I wish you'd come to my place if you're a gardener. I mean, I've been trying to get a... <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I just don't have time, but I mean, I've, I've employed more gardeners at $40 an hour who wouldn't know a bit of ragwort from a rhododendron. You, you wouldn't believe it. After 10 minutes, you know they're not gardeners, but they, they've been to Burnley. If you want, an, if you want a kind of test of the uh, denaturedness of our society, try and find a gardener. Um, they know nothing. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it really is. I mean, I, I reckon, you know, the loss of, of knowledge in my lifetime in, of, of gardens and, and nature generally is immense. I mean, it's probably, you know, it probably matches species loss and other things. I don't know. But it's, um, and I think that is the main, that's what you're up against more than anything else, is that if, if, if as we live more and more in cities and as we know less and less about how things work um, and we're less and less interested in it, in it um, and it's not just a, you know, a country like Australia. I mean, if you think of the third world, um, the world in general, then it's very hard for people to make any kind of connection. I mean, they live day to day and they're not going to be motivated very much until their survival is in yeah. some way threatened. Yeah. I mean, in that way, they're like nature, whether they know it or not. I think we can only have uh, one more question over there and one over there, and we're probably going to have to close down quite soon, but it's great to see all these questions, so let's keep on for a while. <laughs> yeah, Hi. Um, I've been battling this climate change since 2010 and um, set up a few things. I set up knitting nanas on the um, northern beaches and a group of us... <laughs> we, were, we, we were going down to Mike Baird's office to annoy him and I thought, why are we doing this? We've got Rob Stokes right here in our town where we live so we sit outside his office and we annoy him every week (laughs) and we write him letters and we go and see him and we sit out there with great big signs saying stop mining coal seam gas and coal mining you know and all this sort of stuff anyway what I was thinking is why don't we take a leaf out of the book of the fossil fuel industry and lobby the politicians madly just get in there and lobby them We've got to be more aggressive. Mm. We're far too polite mm. and quiet. And scientists have got to get into politics. That's my, I feel my like thought. Maybe just going back to what we were talking about earlier about that whole the delusion of inevitability. If, we, if every person felt they were, they were fully capable of being active, imagine what the concentric impact would be. So it's about just changing the psychology around the whole thing, which is that, you know... Our democratic right isn't just voting, it's being able to respond and react to what's going on. So if everyone in here was just to use whatever's available to them, that would have an impact. And we have to, I think it's that, and, and that is about not being despondent. It's the exact opposite. Feeling incredibly motivated and excited that actually we're, we're at a threshold point where much is about to change, actually. And it's the level of despondency that's going to make us all move, I think. Can I just tweak that one thing? I don't think more scientists should get into politics, but more scientists should get political. And if you want to give them permission to do that, that's one of the ways you could probably support them because there's a lot of fear that if they step outside what they consider to be their realm, they'll get punished. They'll get punished in their careers. They'll get punished by their peers. 
So if you can support the scientists to get more political and make more noise, that might help. I wouldn't put them in Parliament. In, 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 <laughs> I wouldn't rush to that option, but get them to... Yeah. There's a uh, last question I think we have to have now. Uh, hi, guys. John Bellamy here, uh, SaveTheTreesAndBusesCampaign.com. Um, just, um, just, it's probably more of a statement um, and that I'd like you to comment on uh, that it's sort of like I've got some people I know that are climate sceptics, right? And I said to them, well, look, do you still want to chop down trees and have waste and pollution and all of that? And they said, oh, no, we don't want that. So it's kind of like i am sort of been thinking about what do we have in common rather than what do we have in difference. So the idea of being saying, well, no one really wants to chop down trees. No one really wants to have um, overdevelopment and smog and pollution. And, and I think that climate sceptics even want that as well. So I'd just like to sort of throw it as a comment and see if you'd like to well, that, comment on that. That kind of speaks to the core of maybe what this is about, which is about what the conversation is and what the focus of the conversation is. So if we can draw on that collective interest, which is that most people would prefer not to cut down a tree, then that really strengthens the green energy revolution you know, focus so much more than, than the whole question of does climate change exist? And I've forgotten her first name, but the woman who wrote the book, um, The The Merchants of Doubt, Orestes, um, she says to enter into that debate is to lose the debate. And so we have to just sort of jump right over it and just call on the fact that here we've actually got all the availability. We've got all of that developed renewable energy across all these different pathways. That's what we should be focusing on rather than continue to question whether it exists at all because that, again, plays into the deniers' hands. I think it's another... You know, it's again the question of alliances with unlikely people. I mean, I've always thought that. If you, if you don't have to believe in climate science to want to breathe clean air as opposed to dirty air or have an environment that's pristine or as pristine as you can get it as opposed to one that's wrecked. So there are all sorts of... And equally, you know, farmers who might be who think climate science is bullshit nevertheless don't want fracking on their land, so they suddenly get on side with all sorts of unlikely people. That's the first thing. But what's so odd about this business about climate change is that, I've always, is that it's, it's so... The divisions are so total. So if, if you see an asteroid, you see something coming towards Earth and 98% of people say it's an asteroid and it's going to hit us and, and 2% say, no, it's a pelican, I mean, generally, people will do something about it. You know, so, well, a duck, at least. <laughs> but... but but in this case, you know, the 2% who say it's a pelican are as held to be, in the interest of balance, I suppose, <laughs> held to be as, uh, as, as, as reliable as the 98%. Kate, Kate's going to come up and say a few uh, final words, and I'll just thank you after that. Thanks so much. And, of course, thanks so much to our panellists. What a fantastic discussion. It's wonderful to see you all here. Um, So just quickly, I just want to make sure that everybody um, is aware that this is just the first of several events that are going to be happening over the course of the next three days as part of the National Environment Meeting 
2016. And so there are programs um, for the duration of what's going to be happening over the next three days in the back, particularly Saturday is a, is a public open day that people are able to come and enjoy many more interesting panels like the one that we had tonight, as well as several workshops and skill shares. Um, so we certainly do hope that we will see you again um, on Saturday. And as I mentioned, there's programs in the back that give you a lot more detail and they will all be taking place here at Sydney Uni. Thanks.